Reflections on Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Fortunately, the environmental poisons, or at least the, the most toxic, toxic of the environmental poisons, are not the kind that you can detect simply by walking out the door and looking up at the sky and taking a deep breath. Uh, sometimes you can detect poisons that way, but they're, they're not uh, often the most uh, lethal ones. The more dangerous of those poisons are the kind that require elaborate technological detecting devices to alert us to what's happening with the ozone layer or what, uh, how much uh, uh, ambient radiation there is in the environment and so on and so forth. And... When symptoms begin to develop that were caused by these subtle forms, subtle but dangerous forms of pollution, without some background, we would not be able to link the causative agent to the symptoms. So we'd be in some confusion about how we got in this fix. Well, spiritual poisons are likewise. We can't often go out and simply open our eyes and look at what is and see where they are and what they're doing. And when the, and, and when the crisis is finally precipitated and the situation becomes symptomatic, we're not often in a position to be able to say, well, this, this is where it came from. This was the cause of this problem that we're now having to face in its aggravated state. But, of course, we don't have uh, elaborate technological devices for the detection and early warning of these, of these uh, spiritual and moral poisons. What we have is literature that tells us a story but highlights some feature of the human dilemma so that we can see as though in high relief a situation which is really everywhere already but because it's in an exaggerated form, what Flannery O'Connor calls uh, distortion, we can see something that, that will alert us to a situation that's much closer to home than we might first suspect by just looking at the story. And so if we want to analyze some of the early stages of a, of a uh, disintegration that sometimes produces great chaos, we could do a lot worse than pick up Flannery O'Connor's short story entitled Revelation. It begins this way. The doctor's waiting room, which was very small, was almost full when the Turpins entered and Mrs. Turpin, who was very large, made it look even smaller by her presence. She stood looming at the end of the magazine table set in the center of it, a living demonstration that the room was inadequate and ridiculous. Her little bright black eyes took in all the patients as she sized up the seating situation. I want to come back to that, that pose there of taking in all the patients and sizing up the seating situation in a minute. But uh, a few lines later, the story says, she could not understand why a doctor with as much money as they made charging $5 a day to just stick their head in the hospital door and look at you couldn't afford a decent-sized waiting room. This one was hardly bigger than a garage. The table was cluttered with limp-looking magazines, and at one end of it 
there was a big green glass ashtray full of cigarette butts and cotton wads with little blood spots on them. If she had had anything to do with the running of the place, that would have been emptied every so often. The radio was softly playing gospel music. The accompanying music is gospel music. Uh, that's the environment that we're looking at, is an environment that is accompanied by gospel music. So let me just make a little aside here before we go on. This is obviously a microcosm, a microcosm of the, of the world, really, a small waiting room, which uh, Mrs. Turpin regarded as inadequate and ridiculous and uh, couldn't understand why it would be so small and therefore so crowded and why it was so ill-kept, why there were little uh, indications around uh, about uh, indicating uh, others, what, the trash that others have left behind and, the, and uh, little spots of blood here and there and other sort of ominous signs. She would not have had it that way, but it's the world really and it's being run to the tune of the gospel music. But it's a microcosm in which a very prominent, arguably the prominent feature of social human social institutions can be seen in, uh, so to speak, in captivity, uh, where, where one can observe the, the, what in, in, in the wild cannot be observed so carefully because it's, uh, there's so much else going on all around it. But in this situation, it, it's, it's, a, it's a laboratory version of what goes on everywhere. And to uh, anticipate what that is, I want to quote to you from uh, René Girard. Here's what Girard said. We ought to examine what goes on in the sectors of modern life where feverish competition and the pangs of promotion by merit flourish within a context of relative leisure, which favors reciprocal observation. Business circles, obviously, and especially intellectual circles, where talk is always of others by people who pay scant attention to themselves. Now, Gerard says, if you want to see the problem in its uh, an early manifestation of a central spiritual and cultural dilemma, the place to go is some place where there is intense competition for promotion or rank and where there is enough leisure for people to be able to uh, observe each other more or less out of the corner of their eye and enough leisure for them to uh, talk of others though they are paying scant attention to themselves. So this is the environment. He says, you've got to watch out for this environment. Well, this is the environment Flannery O'Connor's created for us in this story, not, not uh, peopled with intellectual, as Gerard's talking about, but peopled with just people. But the same thing's going to happen. Now, Flannery O'Connor, of course, another aspect of the environment she has chosen is that it's mid-20th century southern, say, say, 40s and 50s, deep south, the time at which the collapse of the old south, the final disintegration of the old south, was pretty much 
complete. It was only a matter of time before that collapse would be announced to all the world in the form of the civil rights struggles that were to take place there. So the Old South had gone with the wind. The collapse of the old order, which is another very prominent feature of, of what this story is investigating. The anxiety, the need to somehow distinguish, define and distinguish oneself arises when the, the structured inherited forms for providing that classification have collapsed. So let me return to Girard for a second. In another place he says, in a society where the place of individuals is not determined in advance and hierarchies have been obliterated, people are endlessly preoccupied with making a destiny for themselves, with imposing themselves on others, distinguishing themselves from the common herd, in a word, with making a career. In a world where individuals are no longer defined by the place they occupy by virtue of their birth or some other stable and arbitrary factor, the spirit of competition can never be appeased once and for all. Indeed, it gets increasingly inflamed. Everything rests upon comparisons that are necessarily unstable and insecure since there are no longer any fixed points of reference. In such a world, Gerard says, quote, it is hard not to be pleased at something that depresses your rival and not to be depressed at something that pleases him. Everything that brings me up brings down my competitor. Everything that brings them up brings me down. So Gerard goes on to say, the price for all this is perhaps not invariably the aggravation beyond all bounds, but certainly the democratization and vulgarization of what we call neuroses, which are always linked, in my view, to the reinforcement of mimetic competition and the metaphysical aspect of the related tensions. First thing we'll do here today is, is, is meet the, the, the major players in the, in the drama, and they are... We're seeing these people, of course, through the eyes of Mrs. Turpin. And we'll see Mrs. Turpin through the eyes of Mrs. Turpin, not always the most reliable uh, source on these things, but in any case, that's the consciousness that all this is passing through. Mrs. Turpin walks in, and her little bright black eyes took in all the patients as she sized up the seating situation. Sizing up the seating situation, but taking in all the patients, you see. This is not just a question of where's the seat. This is a question of where am I vis-a-vis -vis everybody in this room. So she sizes up the situation. She notices there is an extra seat for her, but she also notices that there is a, a seat being occupied solely by this little snotty-nosed kid, and she thinks uh, that uh, kid should have uh, indicated a little more upbringing when she came in the room. Anyway, the first person we meet in the story is the person often referred to as the pleasant lady or the, uh, or the uh, stylish lady. The story says, her gaze, that's Mrs. Turpin's gaze, settled agreeably on a well-dressed gray-haired lady whose eyes met hers and whose expression said, if that child belonged to me, he would have, had some, he would have some manners and move over. Now she, this was her eyes met agreeably, settled agreeably, on a well-dressed lady, and uh, they agree, 
they understood each other immediately. What we get is a pleasant association between two people brought about at the expense of a third party. You see, a shared object of contempt has has allowed them to acknowledge that they really see eye to eye. So even in the in the most minor and insignificant way the story begins, it uh, manifests a pattern that Girard, with all of his his uh, you know anthropological and critical uh, theories, has predicted for establishing that. Uh, that mutuality at the expense of a shared object of contempt. Then Mrs. Turpin goes on. Mrs. Turpin eased into a vacant chair which held her tight as a corset. I wish I could reduce, she said. Uh, and this is a little bit like, you know, as I said last week, Merton said we must compare O'Connor to Sophocles. And the, the, the players on the great tragic stage are the ones who say these lines. The audience knows what it means because they have some sense of what's really going on here, but the, but the speaker on stage does not, and this is an instance of that. She says she needs to reduce, and little does she know. Oh, you aren't fat, the stylish lady said. Oh, I am too, Mrs. Turpin said. Well, as long as you have a good disposition, the stylish lady said, I don't think it makes a bit of difference what size you are. You just can't beat a good disposition. Now, um, Mrs. Turpin is pleased at that because the idea she, the conversation could go on about her being heavy. She didn't care to have it go on that way. But to have the conversation turn to her disposition, she was pleased to have that happen. What we soon learn is that the stylish lady is really uh, ricocheting all her comments off of whoever can, she can engage in conversation and trying to... Uh, trying to uh, uh, angles them so that they will come back and hit her daughter who's sitting right next to her who has a lousy disposition. So very, already there's a complexity in this social arrangement, you see. But Mrs. Turpin's happy to have this new piece of information about herself and she uses it for the whole rest of the story, which is that she has a good disposition. The next, so that's the pleasant lady. The next person is the, lady, is the person sitting next to the pleasant lady who happens to be the pleasant lady's daughter and we can refer to her as the ugly girl. She's the daughter of the pleasant lady. In a way, here I think Flannery O'Connor is anticipating the, the, the shock that was to occur between the 50s and the 60s in American society. So often in Flannery O'Connor's stories, there, there are only two kinds of people, the sullen and the superficial. Those who are perfectly contained within the within the cultural system, and who and who uh, buy all of its rationalizations and all of its sing-songy notions about what's really going on, and are not troubled by it at all, and they just go happily along, you know, born to shop. And then there are these others who, as some, for some reason, not even any effort on their own, they find themselves outside of it. And they're stuck in traffic behind the born-to-shop crowd, see? And they're sullen. So here they are, they cheek by jowl, and so often in Flannery O'Connor's story. Well, in this instance, they're mother and daughter. 
next to the pleasant lady was a fat girl of 18 or 19 scowling into a thick blue book which Mrs. Turpin saw was entitled Human Development. <laughs> so she's reading this, uh, this obviously this college textbook which is, uh, which is what? Sociology, psychology, human sciences, you know. Uh, and you see, what's happening in that room is the topic that that book is trying in its own sort of fumbling way to come to grips with. The poor girl's face was blue with acne. Now, one thing we find about Mrs. Turpin is that because the social distinctions have collapsed, everything triggers some self-reference. It, everything reminds me, well, how am I doing? You see? So she notices this girl. This girl is fat and has acne. Mrs. Turpin herself was fat, but she had always had good skin. And though she was 47 years old, there was not a wrinkle in her face except around her eyes from laughing too much. Now, we're just, this is just, it's all being laid in here, you see. She's been told she has a good disposition. She does have, she does have a crow's feet, you see, around. That's from laughing too much. But instantly, she sees this 18-year-old girl with acne, and the next thing she thinks is, well, I've always had fair skin. See? Everything is referenced. Okay, that's, so the, the pleasant lady, the ugly girl, and then the white trash. Now, there are three white trash people here, uh, an old woman, presumably the grandmother of the, of the little snotty-nosed kid, and then the mother of the snotty-nosed kid, and, uh, and then the snotty-nosed kid. Those are the three white trash in the room. A leathery old woman in a cotton print dress, she and Claude, Mrs. Turpin and Claude, had three sacks of chicken feed in their pump house that was the same print. As to say, she's making her dress out of feed sacks. And then there was uh, the mother of the child, who was a white trashy woman whose lips were stained with snuff. And she was wearing bedroom slippers, quote, exactly what you would have expected her to have on. Worse than niggers any day, Mrs. Turpin thought. That's the white trash. Now there's this other person. We don't get any picture of her, but we just acknowledge that there is this other category. Next to the child's mother was a red-headed youngest woman reading one of the magazines and working a piece of chewing gum, hell for leather, as Claude would say. She was not white trash, just common. So we, And this is all Mrs. Turpin sizing up the seating situation. And now we get to, to uh, go inside Mrs. Turpin's mind for a few moments. Sometimes at night, when she couldn't go to sleep, Mrs. Turpin would occupy herself with the question of who she would have chosen to be if she couldn't have been herself. If Jesus had said to her before he made her, I like this little touch, this, this, <laughs> this little fundamentalism, which is that Jesus, you know, God has disappeared, you see. Uh, and uh, and, and G- it's this sort of sentimentalized, uh, mythologized uh, thing. But in, anyway, it's a charming aspect of it. If Jesus had said to her before he made her, there's only two places available for you. You can either be a nigger or a white trash. <laughs> what would she have said? Please, Jesus, please, she would have said. <laughs> Just let me wait until there's another place available. And he would have said, no, you have to go right now, and I have only those two places, so make up your mind. 
She would have wiggled and squirmed and begged and pleaded, but it would have been no use. And finally, she would have said, All right, make me a nigger then. But that don't mean a trashy one. And he would have made her a neat, clean, respectable Negro woman, herself, but black. <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh, so all of this going, you know, comparing one, and this, you see, the system is in, is in, um, is in collapse. So uh, it re requires constant attention. And this next passage I'm going to read to you is, is my favorite. Sometimes Mrs. Turpin occupied herself at night naming the classes of people. On the bottom of the heap were most colored people, not the kind she would have been if she had been one, but most of them. Next to them, not above, just away from, were the white trash. Then above them were the homeowners. And, <laughs> I love that. And above them, the home and landowners to which she and Claude belonged. Above she and Claude, there were people with a lot of money and much bigger houses and much more land, but here the complexity of it would begin to bear in on her. Notice that. Below her in the system is divinely ordained. You see, <laughs> there's no problem below. And when she starts looking upward, it gets very complex, you see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but here the complexity of it would begin to bear in on her for some of the people with a lot of money were common and ought to have been below Cla uh, she and Claude and some of the people who had good blood had lost their money and had to rent I love that <laughs> had to rent. and then there were colored people who owned their houses and land as well there was a colored dentist in town who had two, r two red Lincolns in a swimming pool in a farm with registered white faced cattle on it Usually by the time she had fallen asleep, all the classes of people were moiling and roiling around in her head, and she would dream they were all crammed in together in a boxcar being ridden off to be put in a gas oven. <laughs> well, you know, uh, there's a good deal more to that last little thing than just humor, which is that it is the collapse of all those distinctions that produces the great crises, what Girard calls the crisis of distinctions, where uh, all of the former system has collapsed, as of course it did in post-World War I Germany. And in the chaos of, those, of the collapse of those distinctions, all of this intense... Uh, preoccupation with re-establishing some kind of order begins to operate and becomes pathologized and all it takes is the kind of is the kind of uh, really insignificant that the, the image of putting a string in supersaturated solution and having it everything crystallize around it you know. all you need is some somebody that's just crazy enough as Hitler was to believe some of these cockeyed things and you get some some really disastrous formulation. So it's not it wasn't altogether uh, flippant that she comes to that conclusion. I think that's a beautiful clock, she said, and nodded to her right. It was a big wall clock, the face encased in a brass sunburst. Yes, it's very pretty. The stylish lady said agreeably, and right on the dot too. She added 
glancing at her watch. So uh, we're reminded of time. The apocalypse or the breakthrough, the, the rending of the veil, is preceded by the announcement that uh, the hour is near, that this is the 11th hour, that time is running out and all that. But the people in this waiting room are not in a position to deal with that. So they convert it into something that they can deal with. The woman with the snuff-stained lips looked around, in, uh, turned around in her chair and looked up at the clock. You want to know where you can get one of them there clocks? She said in a loud voice. She asked in a loud voice. No, I already have a nice clock, Mrs. Turpin said. Once anybody like her got a leg in the conversation, she would be all over it. You can get you one with green stamps, the woman said. That's most likely where he got his'n. Now, I, I, I don't want to make heavy weather out of green stamps, but just a little aside on green stamps and related uh, things. The disintegration of uh, standards and distinctions has a, another effect on us. If Girard is correct, then we learn desire in a mimetic process, in an imitative process. I learn to desire what I've, I see others whom I would like to emulate desiring. I notice that something is desirable because I see everybody desiring it. And anybody who thinks you're immune to this, uh, notice how when a certain thing comes out, you look at it like a hairdo or a shoe style or something, and you look at it and you think, that's the ugliest thing I have ever seen in my life. And six months later, you, you, you're struck by how attractive that person is who has that. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, we our desire is mimetic. It comes out of the mimetic uh, environment. And when the distinctions that define what is and what is not, uh, or, or defines everything, defines where we are, and it also defines what is and is not desirable and so on, when all of those begin to collapse, there is a kind of a disintegration in the system of desiring so that it becomes much more random uh, something very much like uh, something comparable to Andy Warhol's thing about uh, everybody gets to be famous for 15 minutes sets in in terms of the desiring apparatus because there's no fixed standard for what is or is not desirable. So that I, I'm, I find something desirable, but then that doesn't last very long. It's like the Warhol principle, you know, and a little while later I have something else that's desirable. Well, as you know, the the whole economic system has to be greatly concerned about this operation because it is it is the the engine of the commercial system that, as we know it, is this mimetic desire. So when it starts to develop some of these uh, anomalies, the people that are uh, m maintaining the commercial system have to have to surcharge it with some kind of they have to create the apparatus for it to deal with this diminished desire. Really what it is is a system of diminishing desire. Desire that does not have the fervor of the earlier system. Nor does it have the staying power. Nobody desires something for 20 years anymore. 
you see. It's not going to last that long. It's like wall. It's 15 minutes. You know, you got... Well, early on, the, you know, the, the uh, people working the levers of an economic, economic system, one of the crudest things they came up with early on was a green stamps. That and the layaway plan. Layaway plan was a little better. But the green stamps was, the idea was, uh, you, you spend money, we'll give you money. It's had some, it, it was a little cumbersome, crude, you know, it was sort of like a Model T version of thing. Um, but then they discovered layaway. That was better. See, you could you could just put it away now and come back, pay a little bit, dollar a week, and come back and get it. But that still broke down. Then they discovered the credit card. That was marvelous. If you can't, if desire, if somebody's not going to desire something long enough to save up to buy it. It's not going to last that long. The Warhol principle will cut you off in no time. You've got to be able to get them right when the desire, you know, you don't let them out of the showroom door. See. So I'm just, I went off on this green stamps thing because it's the crude version, but really it is. How are you going to maintain the system when the whole system of desire is falling down? You can get you one with green stamps, the woman said. That's, more, more, that's most likely where he got his one. Save you up enough, you can get you most anything. I got me some jewelry. Ought to have got you a wash rag and some soap, Mrs. Turpin thought. I get contour sheets with mine, the pleasant ladies. <laughs> now, I want to tell you, this is, this is Homeric. You know, the, great, the genius of Homer was that he could always, he would have a scene set in motion, and he would always put his finger on exactly the little object in this elaborate scene that would tell you everything you needed to know about what was going on. I mean, that's why Homer, I think, is the great poet. Well, uh, Merton has compared O'Connor to Sophocles. I'll compare to Homer. Contour sheets. Now, I want to tell you, <laughs> yeah, you could clone the whole personality from contour sheets, you know. But here's, the, here's what's interesting, is to find out that both the stylish lady and the white trash woman traffic in green stamps. The point, I think, of all this is that they're all playing this game. It's, uh, the, the game has different levels of sophistication. The, the, uh, the white trash woman, for instance, uh, thinks she's playing old maid. See, All she's trying to do is trying not to get the old maid. <laughs> she wants to make sure somebody else in the room has got the old maid. <laughs> Simple, straightforward. So you don't get stuck with the old maid. This stylish woman is playing contract bridge. This is much more elaborate kind of. See, you have to take care of. You have to not be seen as uh, an out and out racist, for instance. You have to uh, exhibit certain other features. So it's a much more subtle and sophisticated operation. But it's all. They're all playing it, and it's symbolized by green stamp. The daughter slammed her book shut. She looked straight in front of her, directly through Mrs. Turpin. The girl's eyes seemed lit all of a sudden with a peculiar light like night road signs give. Now, there's a tremendous tension in the room. There are two ways of dissipating conflict without dealing with it. I mean, there must be a thousand ways, but there are two very standard ways, and two that I think have to we have to be particularly keen to ways of dissipating conflict without dealing with it. 
And one is a conflict which is at a fairly low level of, uh, of tension. And the way to dissipate that is to find something pleasant that we all, that, in which we all share, it's common to us all, and change the conversation to that. And uh, the thing that we all have in common, whether or not it's pleasant, is another thing, but the thing we all have in common, of course, is the weather. So we could change the conversation to that. And the other thing uh, for more extreme situations is to gather up that conflict and aggression and anger and redeploy it outside the circle of discourse toward a shared objects of our contempt. Now, this is a much more lethal solution to the problem, but both of them are right here in this story. Now, the ugly woman, the ugly girl has slammed her book and is glaring at Mrs. Turpin, and there's kind of a tension in the room. This is wonderful weather, isn't it, the girl's mother said? Now, here you have it. It's wonderful weather. She's just trying to cover it over with something pleasant they all can share in. Now, here's, here's Mrs. Turpin. She's the object of this, this girl's hatred. She knows that it's going to take more than pleasant weather to deal with this problem. She knows that. But you have to, you have to play the cards you have. She's just been dealt the, the, the weather card, right? And she has to find some way to go from weather to uh, redirecting the, uh, the anger and resentment outside the circle of discourse towards shared objects of contempt. And she has to start with weather. Now watch how... She's a master at it. Watch how quickly. It's good weather for cotton if you can get the niggers to pick it, Mrs. Turpin said. But niggers don't want to pick cotton anymore. You can't get the white folks to pick it, and now you can't get the niggers because they got to be right up there with the white folks. I, I, think, this, I think this little sequence... Uh, should be a study uh, in how the how it creeps in. There's tension in the room, the superficialities, the pleasantries won't cover it up, and there is an instinct, and all of us have it in one at, at one level of uh, uh, competence or another, which is to redirect it so that we can all. Uh, be in accord again. And this is masterful, you see. Mrs. Turpin starts complaining about the niggers. And guess what about the niggers? What, is, what the thing about it is, she says, they got to be right up there with the white folks. See, this is the crisis of distinction. They're not staying in their place. Well, nothing is, you see. It's gone with the wind. The old world of distinctions has collapsed. Now, her solution works better on some than on other. Uh, the opportunity of, of uh, changing this discussion into one in which they uh, all ventilate their uh, disgust with the blacks is an opportunity that the white trash woman seizes upon immediately. She thinks that would be a delightful uh, turn of events in this conversation. So when Mrs. Turpin says... Because they got to be right up there with the white folks. They got to try, anyways, the white trash woman said, leaning forward. Leaning forward. See, she's now in this conversation. Oh, we're going to talk about niggers? 
Mm-hmm. Ah, she's ready. That's the way it's going to be from now on, Mrs. Turpin said. You may as well face it. And this is the crisis of distinction, particularly for the white trash woman. One thing I know, the white trash woman said, two things I ain't going to do. Love no niggers nor scoot, or, or scoot down no hog with no hose. And she let out a bark of contempt. So she's struggling for her position in the social order. And she's, she's about to be dealt a very harsh blow in that struggle because in the door comes a black delivery boy who is also playing the mimetic game but he is playing it masterfully. First of all, he's playing it with a robust uh, the, the vitality of youth and a, and, a, and a robust physique and liveliness and energy. And he comes in and leans on the, on the counter with his bottom sticking out into the room for a while. And he carries on a conversation, but in the conversation... He plays the role of the subservient one in such a way that everybody involved realizes that he is consciously playing the role of the subservient one rather than being the subservient one. He twisted around to face his audience, his elbows behind him on the counter. Notice his audience. And he was something to behold. This is the ghost of Christmas future. (laughs) When he left... The heavy door swung too slowly and closed at length with the sound of suction. For a moment, no one spoke <laughs> because he represents the, the, this whole system being turned upside down. They ought to send all them niggers back to Africa, the white trash woman said. <laughs> That's where they come from in the first place. See, she panics. She realizes. She sees it. We've got we to get rid of them. Because pretty soon they're going to be on top. But here's the contract bridge version. Oh, I couldn't do without my good colored friends, the pleasant lady said. Couldn't do without, she says. That meaning her maid, of course. I couldn't do without my good colored friend. There's a heap of things worse than a nigger, Mrs. Turpin agreed. Well, the girl, the ugly girl is now just seething in her chair. Just rage emanating from her. She is glaring, Mrs. Turpin. It turns out she's a Wellesley student and her name is Mary Grace. (laughs) This is wonderful. The ugly girl, or let's call her Mary Grace, Mary Grace does not uh, cut a very striking image in this story. But then, neither did Jeremiah. (laughs) You see what I mean? I think of Hamlet. Hamlet and his, and his buddy Horatio had been at the University of Wittenberg. At, and we go to universities, as I've said before here, to study the universe. And what we have to do when we get to university is unlearn the little parochial culture that we inhabited before we went to the place where you study the universe. So when, when Hamlet goes to Wittenberg to, to the university... He has to unlearn some of that Denmark stuff. Well, that's all well and good. But when he gets back to Denmark, he's like, the, he's like Mary Grace. He's, you're in a situation where it's either sullen or superficial. And uh, he finds himself among the sullen. He has to put up with Polonius, for instance. Polonius 
tossing off these empty, vacuous pieces of uh, parabolic wisdom, and 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 Claudius strutting around on the stage of Denmark, and Hamlet, you know, with his head in his hand, watching this whole tawdry show. Very much like Mary Grace. And then comes the crisis moment. If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything, and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have got clawed. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude, and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Now, just before we go on here, just call attention to this. She, she loves Claude, and it's that that's going to save her soul. It's, she, in fact, for all of the dumbness of this, she does love Claude. And, uh, and it, this is a genuine feeling. She is genuinely flooded with gratitude when she thinks of Claude. But a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you, she cried aloud. The book struck her directly over her left eye. <laughs> so Mary Grace finally had all she could take, and she heaved the book at her. The doctor was kneeling astride Mary Grace, trying to hold her arm down. He managed after a second to sink a long needle into it. Now that's very interesting. When the cultural narcotic wears off and uh, that person begins to sober up out of that cultural mess, then there is the pharmacological substitute. This was, again, early on, this is like the, the green stamp version. It, was, it wasn't until later that we found that people would actually self-induce, uh, that, that being outside the cultural narcotic is not particularly pleasant. And uh, if there was anything, if, if they could get their hands on uh, their own needles, they would do it to themselves. Mrs. Turpin's head cleared. She leaned forward until she was looking directly into the fierce, brilliant eyes of Mary Grace. There was no doubt in her mind that the girl did know her, knew her in some intense and personal way, beyond time and place and condition. What you got to say to me, she asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting as for a revelation. The girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog, she whispered. Mrs. Turpin sank back in her chair. Everything, of course, gets referred back to this process that's going on, the medic process that's going on. That there girl is going to be a lunatic, ain't she? The white trash woman asked the nurse. I thank God I ain't a lunatic. Now, you see, this... Remember, the white trash woman's in a precarious situation. She's only got uh, niggers and hogs underneath her, as this story has. You see, and there's some question about whether the hogs might be cleaner than white trash children and that the white trash might be uh, more uh, disreputable than the niggers. See? So she's in a very precarious situation, but suddenly she's now, she now has niggers, hogs, and lunatics. So she's had her position considerably improved. <laughs> and she seizes on the opportunity to acknowledge that. The Turpins go back home, lie on the bed, and let this whole thing wash over them. 
Listen here, Mrs. Turpin said. What? Kiss me. Claude leaned over and kissed her loudly on the mouth. He pinched her side, and their hands interlocked. Now that is a scene that should be accompanied by a, a kind of a Wagnerian crescendo, in a sense. That's more or less what uh, John Milton does with it at the end of Paradise Lost. Uh, the, the, right before the fall, Adam and Eve uh, let go of each other's hand and separate. And then the fall and all the consequences of the fall, at the very end of Paradise Lost, they come together again and they hold hands again and begin walking out of paradise into the challenge of the new world. And at the beautiful touch of that, the saving grace of all of that is that they hold hands again. She's angry now with Jesus for having done this to her. So she has, goes out to the pig parlor where they walk, uh, hose down the, the hogs and she starts talking to Jesus. What do you send me a message like that for? She said in a low, fierce voice, barely above a whisper, but with the full force of a shout and its concentrated fury. How am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? One of the most fascinating phrases in this story uh, is what comes next. In the deepening light, everything was taking on a mysterious hue. And I'm particularly taken by that phrase, in the deepening light. It's a kind of oxymoron. In the deepening light. Implication is that it's getting darker and lighter at the same time. The deepening light. It's very much like what Eliot said in The Wasteland with regard to Tiresias. He said, At the violet hour, when the eyes and back turn upward from the desk, when the human engine waits like a taxi throbbing waiting, I, Tiresias, the blind, throbbing between two lives, old man with wrinkled female breasts, can see at the violet hour. So it's in the deepening light of this moment I want to carry that phrase with me uh, from now on, knowing that, in, that, that there is in these confusing uh, crises something called the deepening light. And it's beginning uh, to happen to her. A final surge of fury shook her and she roared, Who do you think you are? The question carried over the pasture and across the highway and the cotton field and returned to her clearly like an answer from beyond the wood. The question was, who do you think you are? And it came back like an answer. The answer is, who do you think you are? This is a beautiful touch, the way Flannery O'Connor concludes this. Claude's truck disappeared down the road with the blacks in the back of the truck. The story says, at any moment, a bigger truck might smash into it and scatter Claude's and the nigger's brains all over the road. That's the thought that Mrs. Turpin is having. Mrs. Turpin stood there, her gaze fixed on the highway, all her muscles rigid. The idea of the fragility of life 
and the one person she really loves might be gone in an instant. And she stood staring at the highway, frozen, until in five or six minutes the truck reappeared. Mrs. Turpin gazed as though through the very heart of mystery down into the pig parlor at the hogs. They appeared to pant with a secret life. She realizes the precariousness of life and particularly the life of the person she loves. And she looks now at the hogs. She's been called one. And she looks at them and everything opens up. Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge. The sun goes down behind the woods and there's a purple streak across the sky. So it's the violet hour when Tiresias can see. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture hieratic and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of black niggers in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. I particularly like that image of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything in the God-given sense to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. So that's the moment of when all of it falls away. Sebastian Moore said, Sin is seeing my life through other people's eyes. And Ernesto Cardinal said this, No two leaves are the same and no two people, but sin levels us and makes us uniform. The saints, however, are all different. They have found the identity which each of us has but has lost through sin. The mimetic process is a whole elaborate system of Models and mimics, models and mimics, models and mimics. And you let that system cook for very long, and what you have is a uniformity. So the terrible irony, you see, the, once the gospel is introduced to the situation, you, you, you're going to have to either have to have paradox or irony. And irony is just the paradox catching up with you. And the, par the, the, the paradox is that the more you try to distinguish yourself, the more indistinguishable from the herd you become. The earnest, if simple-minded, advice of Shakespeare's Polonius, to thine own self be true, can occasionally, but I suspect for very brief stretches of time, help immunize one from the imitative activities that eventually leave life hollow. But Polonius is spitting in the wind.
The imitative instinct is too much with us. Were we left only with Polonius, we would eventually be imitating someone we have seen who seems to be being true to himself. I have a joke about that. A young monk comes in to the abbot's quarters, and the abbot is over in the corner praying, and the abbot is beating his breast and saying to himself, I am nothing, I am nothing, I am nothing. And when the abbot finishes his prayer, he looks up and he notices that the young monk is sitting over there himself praying and beating his breast, saying, I am nothing, I am nothing, I am nothing. And when the young monk looks up, he sees the abbot watching him, and he looks over and he notices that the, that the cleaning woman has come in, and she, she is sitting over in the corner. She is beating her breast, and she, she is saying, I am nothing, I am nothing, I am nothing. And the young monk looks at the abbot and says, Look who thinks she's nothing. <laughs> the sandcastles of our identity projects are being built closer and closer to the breakers of the incoming tide of the Gospels. We can only learn to stop imitating by imitating one who did. Ultimately, the imitation of Christ is the key to our uniqueness, not the imitation of Jesus, but the imitation of Christ, which Jesus became by virtue of his Abba experience. That was his, the, his word for the relationship he had with, with God. The Abba experience grounded Jesus' identity in his relation to God and not in some interplay with his contemporary. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So he called a little child to him and set the child in front of them. Then he said, I tell you solemnly, unless you can change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the one who makes himself as little as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. But anyone who is a scandalon, who is a stumbling block, to bring down one of these little ones who have faith in me would be better thrown in the depths of the sea with a great millstone around his neck. If your hand or your foot should cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye should cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna. We usually translate that hell, but as you know, Gehenna refers to the garbage dump southwest of Jerusalem, which had before in ancient times been the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, where the sacrificial, human sacrificial offerings were made. And there is, in Jesus' reference to it, I think an echo of its former uh, uh, association. So what starts off with very simply here, it is, begins with the disciples comparing themselves to each other and asking Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus began, brings a child over and he begins a discourse that ends by saying, it would be better for you to cut off your hand or your foot or pluck out your eye than to go down this path which ends in the sacrificial cult where victims are offered up on the altar. 
so subtle. They're just walking down the road, comparing themselves to each other. It doesn't seem like it's going to lead to bloodletting. And Jesus says, be careful. This is the road back to the sacrificial cult. The first thing that Jesus asked in the Gospel of John is, uh, where, do you, where do you reside? Where do you stay? And he says, come and see. And uh, so I imagine then, you know, everybody is beckoned to this. Say, okay, well, it's not someplace you'll... If I told you about it, you wouldn't understand it. You just have to come and see. So everybody starts down this road. Well, thinking that it's an ordinary place like to all the other places we've ever seen, we start down the road and we start to say, we start looking out the corner of our eye. How am I doing vis-a-vis all the rest of these folks on this road? And then you get to this place and Jesus said, well, that's precisely the kind of place we're not going to. We're not going to a place where, you, where that has to take place. See, that's, that's irrelevant to it. If we go down the road where you're doing that, you end up at the sacrificial altar. But it is a, it is a following. It is, a, it, is a, it is an imitative process. We, we do have this, this one life that's offered to us as, a, as, as an object of our emulation, which will not be... It's, in a sense, it's offered as the only object of emulation that will not lead to the sacrificial cult. It, it, there's implicit in this that every other object of emulation will eventually involve us in, uh, in this c- competition about who's the greatest, and it will detour to Ben Hinnom. But here it says, we're not going down that road. This concludes Reflections on Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.